Good afternoon, or maybe some other time of day, depending on which time zone you're in. And uh, we are going to actually be asking you that, so uh, get ready for that. Uh, hi, I'm Paul Bulberding, um, and I'm really happy to welcome you to uh, this informal discussion uh, that um, I'm going to be having, actually that we're both going to be having. Uh, I'm, I'm talking with Peter Chin Hong. Uh, Peter is a, uh, at UCSF and uh, has been very involved in HIV and infectious disease in general, but now is especially, like a lot of you probably, uh, very involved in uh, in response to uh, to COVID. Um, so a little uh, little background here. This is a very informal discussion. We're going to give you a chance to, to ask uh, questions. Um, we'll have you ask those questions on the Q&A function uh, on your Zoom screen. And um, we'll, we'll be watching those. And, and then Peter and I will respond. Um, and we're going to be talking to each other. So Peter is likely to ask me questions as I will be uh, asking uh, asking Peter, um, this we've we've done this now uh, these kind of uh, informal dialogues uh, with the International Antiviral Society USA uh, for for a while now, uh, and, and during the the pandemic and, and the, the stay at home uh, shutdown uh, orders, and the, the idea is to is to you know take advantage of this medium. Um, Zoom is we're all using it. Um, it's a way we can get a lot of people together. It's a lot way we can share ideas, and it's a way we can um, really do things that are really up to the minute uh, because we don't have to prep lectures and have slides and the rest. So, um, so we look forward to this. It's also a way we can get a lot of people um, uh, in the in the room, if you, if you call it that. Um, we already have, I think, 125 uh, people uh, in this Zoom. Uh, a number more have, have registered and may or may not be able to join us. Uh, but uh, let's start um, uh, with, and, and by the way, we're going to have about um, 40 minutes of discussion and then 20 minutes for Q&A. So let's start by uh, asking you um, where you are. <laughs> so this is open to anyone in the world, uh, but why don't we do a, an audience response question here and tell us uh, what your current time zone is, if you know it. Uh, Eastern, Central, Mountain, Pacific, Alaska, Hawaii. Um, so why don't you take a second to do that? All 132 of you now that are in the, in the room. And then we'll show the answers. So um, basically a kind of a split between East and West Coast, it looks like. Um, where the population, I guess, is, is the biggest, 43% uh, and Eastern 35% uh, here on the, on the West Coast. Um, next uh, polling question, if I could. So it's not always easy to pick one of these, but uh, to the best of your ability, kind of where do you work? Um, do you work mostly in clinical research, clinic sessions, commercial company, uh, community-based health center, government, group practice, hospital-based, or your uh, training of, at some point? So let's see that when we get the results. And a, a, a wide mix, I, I guess the uh, Plurality is community-based health centers, um, but with a, a fair number of people involved um, in clinical uh, research uh, and some of the other ones, government uh, uh, employees as well. So uh, great. Um, and I'm watching the, the participants. I see some good friends on the list. I might surprise you like Kevin Carmichael and ask you a question as well at some point. I can't do that because your audio is disabled, but uh, but it is nice to see uh, nice to see a lot of our uh, of, of our colleagues uh, joining uh, joining these uh, programs. So Peter, um, so I'm a professor of medicine at UCSF. I'm emeritus now. I'm on my way towards retirement. But you're you're not. You're pretty active, I think. Uh, 
why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, Peter and I were at one program together in Chicago, and one of the um, uh, people in the audience correctly guessed his uh, his origin from his accent. So don't tell us your origin right away. Just tell us your your training, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> Just, See if anybody recognizes. Yeah. Actually, that's been one of the um, interesting, um, you know, bonuses of being somewhat in the media sometimes is that all of a sudden, all the people from the place that I came from recognize me and they send me emails and like um, pictures and tell me where like specific restaurants are. I mean, it's been kind of interesting in that way. But right, right. Uh, after I moved to the United States from said uh, place that I came from, uh, I was at on the East Coast, and I remember like the only time I saw snow before was in my deep freeze uh, when we had this old <laughs> freezer, and it was defrosting. And I would stick my head in when it was defrosting and pretend it was snow. Yeah. Um, and then I came to snow, which was at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, which was not like the U.S. I've seen before, which is the only time I'd visited was New York, and I thought the whole U.S. was like New York. Then I went to Providence and store 24 wasn't even open 24 hours of the day. Of the day. And I was so surprised because it was right. not my expectations. I like made snow angels for uh, winter and then got tired of snow, moved to California where my friend from uh, growing up was working for Oracle. Um, and then um, after I ate a burrito every day in Valencia Street, I couldn't really give it up. And UCSF was really everything that I cherished uh, in, you know, what I wanted to do, which was, you know, multidisciplinary. I, I think that Ward 86 and the program that Paul uh, built was really one of the draws for me as a young um, trainee, sort of looking for inspiration for the next level. And I was uh, true to the religion of you can stay here forever, which UCSF stands for. Right. Uh, I've been here ever since. <laughs> Yeah, and, and for the for the for the participants in the in the in the program today, uh, I, I won't ask him to toot his own horn too much. But um, Peter's a spectacular educator um, and has played a major role in the, in the medical school curriculum, and has spoken uh, on ISUSA programs before. Um, Peter has sort of developed an, a niche area before COVID came along of, of I think transplant infectious disease. Um, knows a lot about that. We're not going to ask him about that today um, because uh, we're mostly going to be talking about uh, about COVID, but um, but it, it's great to have you here. And, and we can't ask the audience a poll. I guess we could design one, but we didn't. Um, so the, the mysterious uh, country of origin is Trinidad and Tobago. Um, so uh, you're on the Trinidad side, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, so Trinidad, Trinidad, Trinidadians, Trinidadians, Trinidadians uh, yeah. recognize your accent, and that's 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 how I knew. Yeah. Um, great. So I, so, I still carried on my uh, keychain, so these are the colors of the, the flag. Excellent. It looks a little bit different. Yeah. So, um, you know, everything in our world changed in the in the early part of of, of this year. Do you, you want to give us just a, a little bit of kind of the the earliest? Um, kind of recognition and, and how you started to get involved in, in responding to COVID? So I think in the ID division, we got involved in COVID long before the rest of the country did because we were seeing what was happening in Wuhan, China, and we had felt sort of like um, a premonition that something was going to happen that was on a much larger scale, even though at that time the Chinese government was playing down the epidemic. They were seeing that it was, they were all in control of it. It was you know, confined to Wuhan after that uh, market outbreak. And I, you know, I, and then we saw the numbers, the numbers were just speaking for itself, which was, again, a premonition of what was to come in our own country, where there was a mixed messaging of data and facts with what somebody, some political leader was saying that was completely at odds with each other. And I think at that point, it became clear that scientists had to really be one of the spokespeople for the epidemic because again, the political narrative was very different from the epidemiology and the scientific narrative. So I think early on we were preparing, uh, we helped the medical center uh, develop strategies for how we would do very basic things. Everyone, as it became more known 
that it was uh, the emerging epidemic in the US itself, um, people were becoming very, very anxious. So I think the early epidemic in COVID was all about anxiety. We, we didn't know how it was spread. And that is very similar, I think, to HIV. And a question I would bring back to Paul too. Everyone was, we were on the front lines taking care of patients. We were afraid of bringing it home. I remember taking my shoes off in my trunk of my car because I was afraid of my surfaces like touching the floor at home and then my family would touch it and then get ill. You know, we, we, I changed my clothes before I came in. My colleagues were taking showers at UCSF before they went home when we were in touch with COVID patients. And I think that early days of COVID um, were really anxious. We were anxious, the people in the, in the community were even more anxious because we weren't getting consistent messaging even early on from, from our political leaders. Well, in, and I do want to talk more about that because I think we're, we still see that uh, in terms of stories to the minute, the story this morning about the HHS spokesperson um, and his um, stuff with uh, the messaging of the CDC is something I want to get, get back to. But I'm, in, I'm curious as to how, how the ID people, how you all decided to get organized? Did you, did you say, I'm going to take on this, I'm going to take on vaccines, I'm going to take on treatments, I'm going to take on ICU, um, I'm going to be the spokesperson? Uh, was that ever an explicit thing? Because uh, for, the, for the people in the, in the group today, um, I'm sure you've heard uh, Peter, um, he's been you know, a, a real a great star for effective communications uh, nationally. Um, so did that just happen or was it, was it planned? I think people in any community have different loves and passions and skill sets. So I think when all of the when all of the enormity of COVID came what be, became apparent, which was pretty early on actually, there was a need for like somebody who loved doing investigational trials, somebody who loved and was really uh, into in the infection control part. There's somebody who loved patient care. And it so happened that all of these ecosystems existed in our ID community here. And then of course, lots of other people outside of ID, but it's just speaking for my own community here. Um, you know, people, we all came together. I remember the seminal uh, ID grand rounds we had where we educated ourselves about COVID, what we knew so far, what was the Chinese experience at that point, the first uh, few hundred cases of what the Chinese experience had been published in the New England Journal. We were looking at data and figuring out how to apply it to us. At that point, there was no known therapy, um, but we heard about Gilead's drug that was used for Ebola. Gilead was in our backyard. We had a lot of UCSF people at Gilead. So we were getting sort of like uh, the scoop from the inside. And so we had a premonition about remdesivir. Then it was compassionate use. Um, and, but we all fell into our little ecosystems. And in terms of communication, you know, I've been teaching medical students, as you said, for a long time, Paul, and yep. <laughs> it was really my love. You know, I love sort of like taking abstruse ideas and distilling them into um, easy to understand concepts because that's what I needed myself when I ne had to learn this stuff. I need to break it down into schema and use metaphors. I gave bugs personality. So I, I use the same way I talk to medical students to the community. And I think um, that's how it, how it happened. Uh, you know, if you kind of imagine the early stages of when I decided to communicate with the yeah, yeah. community was driven by the anxiety and all the questions and, um, and the rest uh, took care of itself. Well, I mean, I think there's a, a, a close relationship between education and communications. And, you know, obviously you want to communicate an idea you want it to be effective you want to to get your point across and i think that's true in um in media uh communications as well um one of the things that i'm sure you you didn't do was do anything to um exaggerate fears or um uh reassure people um that nothing was that the, there was no problem i don't know if you want to talk about about that i mean in contrast to some people that we could name yes no definitely my my modus operandi was also be to be as even keel as possible and to meet people where they were, just like you would meet a student where they are. Uh, I think the worst thing you'd want to do is just 
have like super high expectations, always wear a mask or never leave home or what are you doing going to the beach? And you don't censure people, you don't scold them. You kind of meet them where they are and you begin that dialogue. And I think that was always my approach from the beginning, learning from where my students were. So, um, you know, reassuring and maybe um, being from the Caribbean, that helped, yeah. I wasn't sure uh, because, but you know, internally we were all having these questions, but I knew that people were really worried and we needed to be as science-based as possible, make uh, linkages to the other respiratory viruses we knew. It wasn't like this unknown thing. We had the principles from before and you applied it and you added knowledge as we began to get more knowledge about COVID-19. One of the, it's a tangent, but one of the things that's been interesting to some of us old timers is uh, that um, a number of the people that were quite involved in HIV and other, uh, other issues when COVID came along um, did pop up as, um, you know, familiar faces now. Ashish Jha, who we see on CNN daily and, and all the other networks and, uh, as well, uh, was one of my, my first chief resident at the VA. Um, Carlos Del Rio, who I'm looking to see if he's on the call today. I know he was thinking about it um, at Emory has uh, again emerged as a as a, a real kind of a very effective uh, communicator. And then finally, I, I won't go on with this, but uh, um, Bill Hazeltine, uh, Bill and I were the, among the uh, co-founders of the journal Jades. And now he emerges decades later, um, daily again on CNN. So but I, but I think it, I think the the, net, the I think the broadcasters look for people like you, Peter, who are who do have that ability to communicate, and it's a good thing because uh, we sure need it uh, with everything going on these days. Um, I wanted to talk just a little bit about the the clinical uh, features that you're seeing. Um, are is your involvement mostly with hospitalized patients, um, and and what about the care of the people that don't require hospitalization? Are they effectively being managed or just being told to manage at home? I think that narrative is changing, but in, for much of it and still today, um, most of the emphasis is on the sickest of the sick, almost like HIV again. Like yeah. I think our eyes, as we learn more about how to care the sickest of the sick, our minds are opening up to the vast swaths of people who are asymptomatic carriers and we have very little information still as to of these 10 people who are asymptomatic carriers, which one is actually going to pro progress to badness? And what can we offer people in the outpatient world, just like in HIV, yeah, yeah, to yeah, help yeah. them prevent their progression? And I think right now, clinical trials are moving in that outpatient direction, but they've been very slow, limited by the delivery of these uh, antivirals or therapies we've had for patients, which because remdesivir is just IV. IV, just IV, right? Remdesivir. Mm -hmm. So it's like we, we need a pill, uh, obviously, for that group of people. And one of the things that I, I did want to talk more about the asymptomatics because that's been, boy, has that been a poorly communicated. Uh, and I guess the issue at some level is just that we just don't know yet what the full natural history of this of this infection and disease are. Uh, but, you know, we've heard everything from um, don't, and then, and then the horrible communication a couple of weeks ago, don't bother testing asymptomatics. Um, but, um, and then we've heard that well, kids don't get infected or they do, but they don't transmit it. Do you want to clarify some of the, um, some of the issues about the asymptomatic state um, that you started to talk about? Yeah, so I would say what we know from uh, several studies so far is that asymptomatic transmission or asymptomatic state is not a myth. It's about 40% of the people have COVID. Um, and uh, in terms of transmissibility by age group, and this relates to school reopening, uh, probably the best study, although it's not always generalizable, is from South Korea where they looked at like 60,000 cases, uh, people, and they looked at all their cases and went back to their families and sure, some kids got COVID, some, you know, wide range of people. But it turns out that the, for the kids who had COVID, if they were under 10, um, very few, like, let, you know, five or so um, percent of the households were, had some infection, whereas uh, over 10, it was more than 20%. And they acted, 10 to 19 acted like an adult, yeah. basically. 
So that's kind of like where we sit and that's sort of, these kinds of studies help uh, public health uh, determine a guidance for, you know, the, when do you open things? Uh, maybe we, and again, for elementary school kids, because they need so, there's so much emotional and cognitive benefits of going to school. That's why that population has been prioritized. And, you know, just the other day I heard, um, I think some of this is being prompted by this uh, radiologist from Stanford who's now leading <laughs> in, in some, right. of the, some of the things as uh, Atlas um, and, and speculating, uh, you know, of course, about herd immunity and all that, but um, serious speculation that the numbers of people that have been infected maybe 10 or more times the number that have been reported um, is, is that possible? And also the, the, the issue of when the earliest cases actually started, because people are now saying, oh, yeah, that, that yeah. I had a bad cough in December. And yeah. you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, definitely. So really, two really interesting uh, questions there. First, um, the idea of uh, when did it start? <clears throat> and the timeline gets being pushed back um, earlier and earlier. I remember, you know, when in Santa Clara County in our area, when those cases from autopsy were identified to have COVID. And then there was this uh, technology conference in, in Las Vegas that was really seen as the likely uh, spread to the Bay Area because why would Santa Clara Valley, Silicon Valley be the hotspot of COVID in the Bay Area? Yeah. It made no sense otherwise. There are more, many more Asians who go back and forth between um, China to San Francisco, but yet this random place. And then, you know, apparently there was a big contingent to this convention in Las Vegas that uh, the NPR kind of like did an investigation to show and they found out to Silicon Valley and that's why Santa Clara County was really a hotspot. But then, um, you know, people are continuing to go back and back. And of course it makes to any uh, clinician or provider, it makes complete sense that if something is happening in China and there's tons of air travel and this thing spreads by asymptomatic spread and um, there's a lot of exposure to the West Coast that it would have been here instantly from, it's yeah. just that we, the WHO essentially offered the US their kit, which was being used widely around the world, including China. US said, no thanks, we'll develop our own. And of course we know the rest of that story, which is that the testing kits were flawed, the CDC had to pull back on them, and then we had to start from scratch. And then instead of a central distribution, that was the beginning of the end. Each lab in each municipality had to do their own validation, and then you can do your own local testing. So that's what the theme of COVID in the US is, is decentralization, which is terrible, and the worst thing you'd wanna do in an ep epidemic, much more pandemic. Yeah, no, I remember, um... Uh, thinking back again to HIV, how important the CDC was, how there was a strong sense, you know, there, there were political issues. The, everyone knows about Reagan, you know, trying to avoid it and all that. Uh, but I think at every moment, we thought that the CDC was the righteous center of, of the coordination of, of response. People turned to the CDC um, uh, for honest answers. Uh, and, and yet with this, there was no, I don't think there was ever any serious attempt to set up a national surveillance um, so that the questions that we're still uh, asking today could have been uh, could have been addressed. So just a horrible uh, outcome. But, you know, I mean, the, your, your comment about the uh, tech in, in Las Vegas to Silicon Valley reminds me, people on the on the on the, pro, the call today uh, might not all know that uh, the organization ISUSA that's sponsoring the program today also a number of years uh, ago took on the management of the CROI uh, conference, the, the, you know, the centrally important uh, uh, HIV uh, science conference. And uh, just, when, just when we were starting to get a sense of what was happening with COVID, um, it was just days before CROI. And, and we had a very active um, dialogue, not quite a fight, but a very active dialogue within the organization about what, what should we do? Um, before all the stay-at-home orders had, had come out, 
uh, and some people um, really thought that you know it was important to have the Croy conference that the science was really important but that's you know four or five thousand people from all over the world um, and uh, we decided at the very last second uh, to pull the plug into and to move that to a virtual conference it was before virtual conferences got to be you know the norm um, and I'll say that Donna Jacobson, who's the CEO of, of the organization and, and others, uh, really just pulled out all the stops and, and put together an effective conference virtually. But just before uh, CROI was to happen in Boston, in the same convention center, yep. Biogen was having uh, an investors meeting, again, people from all over the world. They, they didn't go virtual. And that was another one of those super spreading events that was that resulted in, in, in the infection being uh, being much more widely and quickly disseminated than it would have been. So these these are accidents, but uh, but I'm really glad that uh, our organization decided to to go virtual. But yeah, that Biogen event was the Sturgis essentially of of yeah, exactly. Um, so. Peter, you're involved now in vaccine uh, as well as treatment. I want to talk about your various research, but uh, I know that you've been interested in immunology, obviously as an infectious disease person, but again, with your, your, with your work with some of the novel um, uh, uh, therapeutics and their uh, infectious complications. But so how, how did you get involved in the vaccine? Is that another one of those things where, where it was like, you were interested and you were there and so you responded and and i do want to talk a little bit about what's happened um with with vaccine development in the last week or two yeah so my so my involvement was really in the therapeutics perspective and the vaccine stuff only came in as a side note based on my um based on the my um relationships with media again the vaccine stuff was uh they just wanted me to tell them to reassure people and to give them what quote unquote the truth was and to translate the science into community speak. But, you know, uh, it was overall, I guess, if you would put it in a box, part of our investigational drug response to the epidemic at UCSF and, and prevention methods as, as targets. So I think what it illustrates is that all these people came out all of the woodwork. I remember clinical research stopped for a while in the beginning and everybody turned to COVID. You could be studying, you know, um, receptors and suddenly you'd be interested in COVID receptors or you'd be yeah, studying yeah. chemistry, you know, physical chemistry and all of a sudden you'd be do looking at the, the, the chemical structures of all these uh, other unused drugs or repurposed drugs. So I think that sort of role, the vaccine part for me came out of that sort of like therapeutics and we can talk more about therapeutics but it was sort I of do like, want to but, but let's stay on vaccines for a minute yeah yeah so um, you weren't directly involved in the AstraZeneca trial were you no I wasn't involved in it but I know about yeah. our efforts and I'm, I'm very I know about what's been happening globally that's for sure and so you know we all speculate and watch and listen to speculations of, about vaccines. I think the dominant thing I've been hearing in the last few days is, well, maybe we're only going to have a 50% uh, percent efficacious vaccine. Uh, will that be enough? Um, so, what, I mean, and I know this is a guess because <laughs> we don't have any data on efficacy yet, uh, but you want to talk about what, what your kind of take is on it. And I also um, want to kind of get back to the topic that's part of our program today about about activism and and the public and think a little bit together about the anti-vaxxers and, and and what kind of strategy what kind of effective way do we can we have of, of meeting those people to try to increase the the, the uptake of this totally so um you know, my take on the vaccine is that uh it's an arms race essentially it's um U.S. versus Russia versus China, and U.S. slash U.K. slash Europe yeah, together. Right. right. Um, and then there's China and there's Russia, and everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Um, I was speaking to a colleague yesterday from Hong Kong University, who's very active in the Chinese vaccine, because again, Hong Kong had to sort of like be one of the sites for the Chinese vaccines, even though they've 
very much academically aligned with UK and the US in many ways. So we've been con comparing and contrasting, but you know, right now I think the three front runners, uh, to tell you the truth, are the AstraZeneca vaccine, although it was held in, as everyone knows, restarted in the UK. The US has some concerns about it. We can talk more about that. The Pfizer vaccine, which was a partnership with a company in Germany, and the US grown Moderna vaccine, which is based in Boston. So those are the three front runners from the US Operation War Speed perspective, although there are seven total that are invested in that realm. From the Chinese perspective, they have a couple of ones that they're working on. And um, from the Russian perspective, we all know, well, hopefully everybody knows about the Sputnik V and yeah. the problems around that, which violates the three T's of when we talk about vaccines. Trans, um, trials, so untesting, so no trials. Recently started, and who knows if they were made up. People, some scientists from Italy wrote a petition saying that the numbers in the Lancet were made up because some of the CD4 and CD8 values were the same in patients, which seems very improbable. Right. Um, transparency, nothing was really available for scientists to look at, and trust, because at the end of the day, it really makes this narrative that anything that some governmental organization um, approves can't be trusted. And I think it probably would jeopardize things beyond Russia, frankly. Right. Um, and, and I'm starting to see some uh, questions come in in the Q&A. We're not going to kind of turn to that uh, until for another few minutes. Um, but. Hello to Martin Mass, who is one of the early uh, HIV um, pioneers here in San Francisco and has a couple questions we'll get to. Um, so anti-vaxxers. Um, so uh, those of us that live in California, I, I think this might be one of the real hotspots of that kind of movement, if you want to call it that, that's been around for a long time. Um, what do you know about that? And you, we've been talking about your uh, communications ability and, and how you are so effective. Have you given that a shot yet? Have you run across people that really need to be convinced that uh, that vaccines are worth at least considering? Yes, I mean, and it has nothing to do with education or anything like that. Uh, yeah. one, one of my best friends, the same friend who convinced me to, well, he didn't have to do much convincing, but was one of the reasons why I moved to San Francisco, graduate of MIT, he's kind of an anti-vaxxer and I, I, I don't, I really don't understand that. I mean, it's like the, you know, what we hear about in, in the Bay Area, you know, wealthy areas actually are, are full of people who are anti-vaxxers. And to me, what it was, it's not like a sudden thing. And I'm worried that it's a build, it has building momentum. And I feel the narrative around mistrust on a politician saying they want to have this vaccine approved by this date, which is two days before the election, is just doing more and more disservice and feed, and providing fodder to the anti-vaxxers. Yeah, yeah. But it, I think it has a historical precedent. And if you look back to 1976, when um, Jared Ford was uh, promoting the swine flu vaccine that was written about uh, recently, I was also on the eve of his re-election. And of course he lost to Carter, but uh, it was a very similar thing where he was speeding up this vaccine, which was uh, at that point, this swine flu epidemic never, never happened, but 40,000 people got Guillain-Barre, and I think, or like several thousand anyway. And I think that was probably one of the moments that people began to question vaccines and also the interplay between politics and vaccines. And I think that is just, Built, the public began to question it. And I think anti-vaxxers built in on that with the autism and all that stuff. I, I was really worried uh, when the AstraZeneca trial um, was stopped because of a case of transverse myelitis. This mm -hmm. is, and, I, and I was worried thinking back to the Guillain-Barre um, and, uh, and I, I just hope that it doesn't make people remember that too much because I think one of the concerns with the vaccine uh, is you know neurologic effects and uh, I don't know do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean I think most many people in the community are worried that this transverse myelitis was actually. I mean I 
I'm such a vaccine fan. I'd hate to sow doubt in people's minds. But luckily, we have many other alternatives. Plus, I like the Oxford vaccine until this point. Um, I'm just want to know more information. But trisosmyelitis is a bona fide uh, reaction that you can get from vaccines. And the particular adenovirus strain that's used in Oxford vaccine was chosen because it was a chimpanzee adenovirus. So it's super different from humans. The Russian Sputnik V is a human adenovirus. And in China, they're using human ones too. The benefit of the chimpanzee one is that you don't have to give a lot to get a huge response because we've never seen it before as a, you know, as a vector. But the, the problem with it is that it can sort of stimulate your immune system to do all sorts of mischief, including autoimmunity and um, this immune reaction that could have led to transverse myelitis. Um, the question is, how probable is this on a population level? Because of course, you know, if it is related to the vaccine, it, it is usually a rare phenomenon. Got it, got it. Um, I want to talk a little bit, uh, going back to, again, sort of the, the communications and advocacy uh, part of today's non-theme theme, theme uh, but I, I really appreciate your, uh, your uh, insights, Peter. But, you know, today then we hear, um, we've been, it's been brewing up for a few days now, this, uh, the HHS spokesman, uh, Michael Caputo, uh, who apparently has been really strong-arming the CDC uh, to have permission to edit the MMWR, even though he's not a, a medical scientist at all, um, because um, this idea that the CDC has a group that are trying to bring about the end of the presidency. You want to just talk a, about that a bit, because I think, you know, we, we so tr have come to trust the CDC in, in our work. Well, I think that, you know, when you look back you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, And then once we began to know about Caputo, I think all of these weird things that we've been seeing in terms of communications from the CDC makes sense now if they were being strong-armed by somebody higher. And first of all, I think that's a big theme. The CDC has been completely silenced during the whole epidemic, which has been unlike any other thing we've seen before in recent times. Ebola, CDC was front and center. Swine H1N1 CDC was front and center. Like you said, Paul, they've always been the trust. And part of the reason why I have this spokes pedestal or podium to talk to people in the community is because we get random messages and we don't know who to trust. So, um, so this role of the CDC has been minimal from the beginning. In fact, they've only been two prominent uh, providers at, or scientists at the front, which is, you know, Deborah Burks and Fauci. And the, right. even Deborah Burks has been somewhat modified in message. And I think a lot of people have been disappointed with that. Yeah. But again, if you want to keep your job, you kind of have to do that fine line, you know, but the, coming back to the CDC, completely silence, making worried recommendations, not disaggregating uh, data by race until they were forced to, even with remdesivir distribution, you know, a few weeks ago or months, months ago, uh, almost a month ago, we, we were instructed from the hospital not to give the CDC real-time data, but to go straight to HHS, uh, which every, shocked everyone again. Right, right. So it was just part of the whole narrative of being, of having information filtered through a body that we normally trust. In fact, it's probably worse than, you know, what we would have, our wildest uh, imaginations. So one of the things that we were talking about uh, earlier, Peter, is the kind of the parallels between HIV and, and COVID in terms of some of these uh, social issues. Uh, you mentioned uh, the fear that healthcare workers had. I think a number of the people in the, in the audience today can remember back uh, when, you know, when we had some real cause for fear uh, before we knew about HIV and, and, and how it was transmitted. Um, but, but boy, did that, change with COVID where, you know, suddenly everyone is, uh, is, at, is at great risk. Um, you know, fortunately, I think the number of deaths of healthcare workers have been relatively small, but it's not insignificant. Um, and are, 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 how are you coping with that? And do you, um, you mentioned that you were really, you know, showering and, 
all that before you came home. Is that still a, an ongoing uh, issue for you and your colleagues? I think as we learned a little bit more about how to protect ourselves, uh, there were several things I think that made us feel better. First of all, the hospital environment became a lot safer with universal masking. I think that was a huge psychological shift in people's mind once that happened. Uh, but even then I remember like, it was ruled out in the hospital, but then not in the beginning applied to just outside the hospital. So I remember people even like this, putting their masks down, but then you would take the elevator to go up the, you know, the UCSF parking lot and like everybody was like there. Right. But, you know, it was ruled out eventually where we felt safe. So I feel like now uh, people are, you know, trying to do as best as they could. Um, some people are still quarantining a little bit if they're in a heavy COVID rotation service and then going home. But I would say most people are sort of um, uh, at peace with how they can protect themselves and their families at home right. for those early days. So uh, this is a, a tangent again, but I remember this, that this uh, pandemic really hit me in the face. Uh, one day I was getting on the shuttle at, at Parnassus, that's the main uh, UCSF campus or at least the original uh, UCSF campus. Um, and right outside the emergency entrance, there was this blue uh, Quonset tent that was being constructed. Yeah. I went, my God, this is maybe, maybe this is real. Um, and then we all kind of, kind of had that accelerated phase where suddenly it went to work from home, shelter in place, um, and, and, and obviously we're still to some degree recovering uh, from all of that. So um, th this is at the time when um, we're, we're meant to kind of open the, the, um, uh, the questions up. Um, and I think that the issues that I've already seen in some of the, in some of the questions um, are, you know, one of the questions is this intersection between HIV and COVID. Um, I think we can put that to, Bed pretty quickly, Peter, but it, but you might want to uh, touch on that. And then um, another participant said that um, just heard today that Moderna uh, has added HIV infection as an exclusion for their vaccine trials, um, which I, I I don't personally think is necessary. But you want to you want to comment on yeah. the HIV COVID part? Yeah. So we were in the beginning of COVID, fearing that uh, HIV patients would be disproportionately affected and have worse outcomes. But so far, it seems that, and, and I can say the same for transplant patients as well, it's less about the immune status of the patient. In fact, some people think it actually is modulating it in a positive way because of the inflammatory response that's cause of a lot of the deaths. Yeah. Um, but it has more to do with the surge in the particular city rather than, you know, our ability to take care of immunocompromised patients and have them go through with a good outcome. Um, in terms of the Moderna vaccine excluding HIV, I think that's a travesty. Um, I, I think we need to know yeah. if our HIV patients respond to vaccines because everybody's yeah. gonna get the vaccine. Yeah, obviously. Um, a person on the, on, the, uh, on the call who does tracking in Michigan um, says, why do we, and this, came up again, I think just yesterday in the, in the press, why do we use fever as, a, as an indicator? It seems like a pretty insensitive yeah, way yeah. of finding. And that's, our thinking has evolved uh, over the months as well, as we realized exactly that people without symptoms can transmit. In fact, they are probably the heaviest transmitters in some cases. So the, the presence of fever is more theatrics. Uh, it's a metaphor for us taking COVID seriously um, by having people remind themselves, but from a biological and medical perspective, it makes no sense. That's why symptom screening uh, in colleges isn't as good as testing. And that's why people move to, to testing. And it's again, very similar to the evolution in thinking with HIV. It's like saying, let's wait until you have like generalized lymphadenopathy before we think you might have HIV. Uh, I, remember, I remember. I remember posters in the gay community during uh, those days of saying no test is best. Um, so people feeling, why should I be tested? Um, obviously, because we didn't have treatments at that time. But so a testing strategy is really better, much better than a symptom checker. And 
when you look at the progressive countries like Hong Kong, they actually test everyone when they go through the borders using saliva. We don't do that. And that's been, I think, one of our limitations in the US. So um, no one has asked this directly, but um, you mentioned testing. And give us a really, really quick uh, thumbnail on which tests and when you use them and, um, and what's the status of, uh, of more widespread testing. Yeah, so the two big boxes of tests are you check for the virus itself, the RNA, or you check for the antibody response. We all know that the antibody response, we don't know what it means if you have it. They're like more than 100 different antibody tests, etc. I'll focus on the tech checking for the virus itself. There's like super good ones, and then there's less sensitive ones that are easier to, to do, that take fewer time, cost $5, etc. The super expensive ones, we use them in the hospital. They're like very sensitive, um, and we know about them. The less sensitive ones, uh, they're cheaper. The antigen tests I'm talking about. Abbott uh, is one of the, the tests that people have read about that may cost $5. Five-minute results. Yeah, and 15-minute results. Yeah, and, yeah. The absence, and the technology is actually to have this available at home, like a pregnancy test actually using laminal flow. But it's just uh, whether or not the FDA will approve such a test because you know that it's not as sensitive, but from modeling from uh, Mina and others at, at Harvard, you know that if you do it enough times and it's easy to get like a cheek swab, uh, the idea is that the cumulative sensitivity would make up for the absolute uh, lack of sensitivity yeah, yeah. And, and be a public health intervention itself. So that's kind of how the tests go. And in terms of the platforms, you can have the most pain, which is like sticking it up all the way and like getting a brain biopsy, less pain, which is like the middle terminates, and the least pain, which is my favorite, which is spitting in a cup, which the MLB has done but that hasn't picked up as much in the US. So I'm really for the least pain and maybe not as sensitive doing it frequently. I'm for that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so another pioneer, Bill Owen, um, asked a great question. Um, uh, a patient has had a prior bout with adenovirus uh, five years ago. Um, does that affect um, your thoughts about whether a vaccine <clears throat> Is it dangerous? Is it safe? Is it yeah, no, that's, effective? That's a great question. And that, that's actually not a very commonly talked about topic yet. I think it's a very important topic. The idea is this idea of uh, what we call uh, antigenic sin. So basically the idea is like you've been exposed to something that looks like COVID. So your body's kind of like revved up already. So when the thing that looks like the other thing that looks like COVID comes along, which is COVID-19, you, you have this dysregulated antibody response, um, ADE as called, and that's why dengue is bad because the other strain comes and like you already revved up and your body goes crazy. It can also work against vaccines because you have the new uh, antigen coming in and somehow your immune system isn't gonna to bother to make new antibodies, just bringing up the old guard, the old soldiers that already yep. kind of <laughs> think it looks like that. So I think it's a very, Question, question, and and one that I think needs to be worked up. Let me uh, <clears throat> go to a question uh, that <clears throat> may be uh, one of the most important ones today. I'll read verbatim because it's it's nicely stated. What can the medical community do to address the disinformation coming in from the, from the federal government? How can we speak in a single voice? That's one of the tell us the, an tell us the answer. <laughs> I want to turn back to you, Paul, but I would say that I talk about my experience and the way I've seen activism work is actually through us, through the providers, through not through some card carrying activists. I wasn't like a, I didn't, I'm, I'm sure that was the same for you, Paul. I didn't come into medicine saying, I'm going to be an activist and change the world. I mean, I, not that I'm doing that now, but I was part of a movement of people who were really mad and upset that the things that we're hearing from the top was so against the science. So that's the first thing I would say, like using science that helps to move people. Uh, surveys in the US still show that the American people, the vast majority still trust scientists and, and, and clinicians when they speak to them. So even though it seems that nobody's trusting, we do have that voice. So using science, speaking up, 
um, socializing it, that, uh, socializing, not doing it alone in a group. So like, I'll give you one example around the George Floyd protests. On a Sunday, I was like minding my own business and some colleagues from University of Washington said, hey, Peter, we're working on this petition. We know that people are protesting against George Floyd and, and I know a lot of people are gonna say it's gonna be bad for COVID in terms of transmission. So the way we moved that petition was to say it was a response to structural racism. Just like you wear masks as a response to COVID, you protest as a response to structural racism, which was a, okay, so that narrative working as a group really helped. And I wasn't like running and laying in front of a door and going on a hunger strike. This was all done on social media in a very quiet consensus building group way. Uh, and then addressing policy like you all have done in HIV is probably the ultimate benefit. Um, and, and that's I think where we're working on with decarceration or banning tear gas, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, and I just add that um, just as we saw with the HIV epidemic, th those of us that were working with the media made ourselves available and, and really thought about how we're communicating. Um, I, I'm really encouraged by seeing that. Um, and, and I think um, at first, most of my friends who were you know, in, in your position um, uh, were a little bit hesitant about, about directly uh, criticizing the, the federal uh, messaging. Uh, but you know, I think, um, boy, Ashish Jha and Carlos Del Rio have been very willing uh, to to do that, and and I think and you and I think that's another thing that we should really encourage. Um, we should thank our spokespersons uh, for uh, for that. So um, great. Um, so quick, can I just say one thing about Carlos? Yeah, yeah. I thought to myself, if Carlos can do that, certainly I can do that. <laughs> Um, so, a uh, really quick uh, uh, comment, um, this is from uh, somebody at the uh, Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health about uh, fomite transmission, has that been laid to rest? Yeah. Can we, can we bring our mail in and not let it sit out for two days? Yeah, definitely don't clean your iPhone every 10 seconds. Focus on the three W's, wearing your mask, washing your hands, and watching your distance. I think yeah. the messaging is simpler. And you can just focus on the most important things. Yeah, I think the simpler the messaging, the, the better in terms of its effect. Uh, uh, one of the participants wants to know something about post-COVID complications and some of these cases of really long-term uh, residual damage. You know, yeah, so they're called the long haulers. It's probably not, we don't really know the extent of it yet, um, but certainly there have been really uh, bona fide cases of people I think famously written about by Ed Young in the Atlantic as really bringing it to people's awareness. And then later on in subsequent sort of like uh, the lead press and then it, it's being studied now uh, at UCSF and other places in these longitudinal studies of people with chronic conditions. But they're actually pretty um, mind blowing and surprising and uh, really taking a toll on people's life, like the smell of burned cigarettes, or forest fires, the brain fog. <laughs> so we, have the smell, we have the smell of forest fires. That I know, the real smell, yeah. <laughs> I know, it. people were describing that even before and then now everybody's smelling it, so. Yeah. So Gwen Scott, um, I'm, I'm sorry to keep picking oh, yeah, up yeah. my favorite heroes around the country, but uh, Gwen, uh, who's been leader in pediatric HIV, uh, asked uh, about the flu season. Um, what, what are you doing? What, apart from, I hope, getting your flu vaccine. Yeah. So I think there is both the good and the bad with the flu. Um, the good is that I think people are going to be wearing masks because of COVID. So it's spread in the same way as everyone knows in the call. So the hope is that the flu season would be, not be as bad normally. But the bad is that, uh, and there are several things about the bad. The first is that people do get hospitalized with flu. And this time last year, we didn't have COVID it, as we knew it in the hospital system. We still have like 20 to 30 patients in this one hospital I'm at now. So even though it's lower in California, they're still simmering. You put COVID, uh, you put influenza hospitalizations on top of that and you become very tenuous as a hospital system. The second aspect is biological and it will be interesting to see uh, what, how they work bi-directionally in terms of risk. In other words, 
we know that influenza increases your risk for bacterial infections like MRSA and, and, and staph. Uh, would COVID or flu increase the risk of the other coming in? And what about dual infection? So those are all questions that we'll have. And, and even simple questions like, should I get the flu vaccine now or should I wait if they figure out they made a mistake with the flu vaccine, they make a better one later on. So, um, you know, they're all questions that we have with flu. And the summary point is, I think it would not be as good as if we just had COVID alone because of all those reasons. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, Jeff Taylor, who's a very involved uh, HIV activist, um, says uh, he believes that Moderna has changed and is now allowing HIV. Um, um, I'm, I'm not sure he has a, a URL that I'm not gonna click because I don't yeah. want to screw up the, the, the webinar. Um, and then someone else comments about Pfizer allowing HIV. Is, 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 is there kind of, do, do you know? I don't know about Pfizer and Moderna, but I do know that AstraZeneca, I believe, has a trial in South Africa with HIV-infected patients getting the vaccine. But I, you know, I, I don't know about those other two uh, companies. I think it would be important to include them uh, for sure in trials. Um, but um, you know, we because we just need to know if the juice is worth the squeeze, and different vaccines will probably have different efficacies in our most vulnerable patients, and we just need to know that information. Here's a really a great question about um, the intersection between the adenovirus uh, vaccines and stem cell uh, fetal research, um, uh, uh, that saying that there's uh, some opposition to vaccines within the Catholic Church for vaccines that are, are made uh, using some of this technology. Um, uh, what do you think about that? Is that uh, something that we should be paying attention to? I mean, so far the the sort of buzz has been low. Uh, luckily, um, hopefully, people will just focus on the idea that it's a public health pandemic and not think about those nuances. Because again, we all need to reach up to that herd immunity if we are to keep ourselves the vulnerable people who can't get vaccinated safe. And um, the other uh, issue that came up too is the issue of monkeys because you do need monkeys and it's the same issue with HIV research too. You do, you, monkeys are essential for the first stage of vaccine trials and because of the decimation of monkey infrastructure for research in the U.S. after HIV, it's been very difficult for researchers to do vaccine studies in the U.S. because they can't get the monkeys. They all come from China and we have tension with China so we can't get those monkeys over. So I think those, that's another group that's been worried, people worried about. Great, and, and there seems to be a growing consensus among the, among the Q&A uh, side of uh, this that Moderna does allow HIV um, and Pfizer as well. So uh, thanks uh, for the feedback um, on that. Um, one of the uh, questions was about some of the um, uh, oral um, uh, symptoms, uh, eye problems, blurry eyes, red, yellow eyes, is, is, are there some uh, ocular stuff that's, that's not being captured in some of these? Um, I think there are ocular abnormalities. Uh, it's just not a feature of them standing alone. In other words, you wouldn't get conjunctivitis with nothing else. They usually, right. at least the studies I've seen, they usually happen in concert with some of the traditional things we think about. I remember Carlos Del Rio early on told me, there are two things he does every time he wakes up in the morning. He checks to see if he has a temperature and he smells his coffee. If you can smell his coffee and he doesn't have a fever, he's good to go for the day. I basically do the same thing. <laughs> I got a pulse ox too, just in case, but I yeah. so far haven't, haven't been monitoring my pulse ox. Um, we are at the, at the end of the hour. We have a really great question still that I didn't get, uh, get a chance to, um, to address. Um, Peter, you've been spectacular. Um, I think people can understand why you're such a popular teacher here at UCSF. Um, and I'll show them everybody my COVID plush toy too. You can order it as well. I ordered it in April and it was back ordered until July. I guess everyone was. And on various other webinars, I think people have been showing their, their Fauci t-shirts and yeah. uh, bobblehead dolls as well. So uh, great. I think I have another slide to show. 
Uh, we still have, we, we got up to about 160 people on the, on the program today, and thanks to everyone um, uh, for, for joining us. We're going to keep doing these. Um, so this is a, a way to see uh, what's coming up from ISUSA activities, including these dialogues, we call them. Um, by the way, this doesn't earn CME credit. I'm sorry for that, but it makes it a whole lot easier to organize these. Um, and, um, and I hope they're still useful even without this, the CME. So uh, thanks for, uh, uh, for uh, staff uh, ISUSA helping out and uh, we'll let you get back to your day. Thank you.